Everything stands or falls on leadership, right? We know this. What happens when a team's doing terrible? We hire a new coach. What happens when a nation's falling apart? We get a new prime minister or a new president, right? What happens when a business is collapsing? We find a new CEO. Everything stands and falls on leadership. And we've been asking a question kind of as a staff for a long time. How do we invest in more leaders? How do we invest in the leaders of tomorrow today? And our answer, at least right now, one of our answers, is the residency. And I just want to take a moment, tell you about it. You just saw Tyler on that video, heard his story. Here's what the residency is. It's a two-year experience where we wanted to deepen and develop and deploy more leaders. We do that by investing in three areas. We invest in their head, their heart, and their hands, right? Head is theological education. Everyone who comes through the residency has an opportunity in two years to get a master's from Southeastern Seminary, so that's amazing. On top of that, it's head, it's heart. We want to do spiritual formation. We want to help them. A lot of times we're getting people, they're right out of college. It's their first job. It's their first kind of time in the quote-unquote real world. We want to invest in them. And then ministry experience, they get to be behind the scenes, behind the curtain, see everything that we do and get hands-on kind of supervision and shepherding as they're doing it. So we're really excited about it. If you're in here and maybe you have a nephew or a niece or a brother or a sister, or maybe it's you and, and you're about to graduate and you're thinking from college and you're thinking, what's next for me? Would you consider two years for the residency? This is what we call the Mormonization of the church. Okay, we're gonna just do, we're pulling a playbook from the Mormons, okay? They asked for two years, we're asking for two years. And here's why this is so exciting. So uh, you've been hearing us talk for the last few weeks about Hold the Rope. We talk about local partners, we've done that. We talk about global partners, we're gonna talk about them as well. But we also talk about our national partners. Now, all of our national church planters went through a residency. In fact, this is real personal for me. About eight years ago, uh, me and my wife, we were wrestling with calling. We were kind of in a cul-de-sac, a cul-de-sac of life. We weren't sure what to do. I was wrestling with whether or not I was gonna stay in full-time ministry. I was wrestling with whether or not I was gonna go into business with my dad and my brother. And I was wrestling with all these different things. And for me, the Summit Network, now Summit Collaborative Residency, made a massive difference. Took me from kind of being in a cul-de-sac to it was really a catalyst for future ministry. And so uh, when we have helped over the last six years, we've helped to plant uh, 10 different churches. All of those church planters went into residency. So as we think about how do we strengthen and secure the church of the future, we think we do it through our residence. And, and I want to tell you about one guy that we're going to be supporting through Hold the Rope this year. That's our end of the year annual offering where we ask you to give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings. We're going to support Josh Miller. Let me show you a picture of his building. Josh Miller planted several years ago right next to UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia, and they just got into their brand new building, right? And it took all their time, all their energy, all their money, and, and we want to bless them as they head into 2023. They don't know this is happening, uh, because here's how we think about investing. We think uh, sometimes you invest in need, right? That's always, well, there's such a need here. I have to do something. A lot of times we uh, invest in relationship. Well, I know them, so I should probably give something to them. Uh, but my favorite thing to do is to invest where we see the kingdom advancing. And that's what we're seeing with Josh Miller. That's what we're seeing with Center Church. And so here's our ask. Would you and your family give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings before the end of the year? Our goal, not a financial goal, but as a participation goal, we want to see 100% of the people who call Two Cities Church uh, do this together. And so, and I would encourage you just to uh, talk to your kids about this. We're doing this in my family. I've got three young kids. And here's what I love about that. When you're raising kids in a Christian home, it's easy, it's a temptation for them to view their Christianity as all the things, especially as they get older, as all the things they don't get to do. My friends get to do this, but I don't. Is Christianity about all the things I don't get to do? No, no, no. Christianity is about a generous God and an exciting mission. And we want you to taste generosity and mission from an early age. So my kids are arguing over who's going to give the biggest gift. So we'll see, okay? Let's pray, and then let's dive into Mark. Lord, we just pray right now for our church planners. 
uh, 10 of them all up and down the East Coast, particularly for Josh Miller, that he would be encouraged. That this, this financial gift that at the beginning of 2023 will just be a way to say, we believe in you, we're proud of you, we're excited, we want to see you continue to do more and more ministry, mercy, and mission in your city. Lord, I pray for just uh, people all across our city, across the triad, and maybe otherwise connected to our church, who they're trying to figure out, they're questioning calling, they're desiring more theological education, spiritual formation, and ministry experience. And I just, I just pray that we could be a place where we can invest, our church would be a place where we invest in the church of tomorrow today. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, have you ever experienced rejection? Of course you have, you're human, right? Rejection's a part of life. Now, some people, rejection is very deep. And for some people, you get to meet them and rejection defines their whole life. I don't know, it's usually something like, why wasn't my dad around? Why couldn't my parents stay together? Why did my dad marry someone half his age and move across the country? Was I not valuable enough? So sometimes rejection goes really deep. Like, what's wrong with me with this rejection? But there's like stages of rejection in life, right? Remember going to elementary school? What's the first rejection you experience? Friends. Like, what friend group, right? Like, you don't get invited to the birthday party, it hurts. You don't get to sit at the lunch table, it hurts. And you have to deal, and your parents try to help you, and you're, you know, you're in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, you're trying to deal with rejection. You finally get over it, you make your friends, you're like, oh, praise the Lord. Then you get to middle school, then you experience even a deeper type of rejection. You know what that is? Opposite sex rejection, right? Every guy never wants to hear these words. We just want to be friends. I just want to be your friend, which means I have zero romantic interest in you, right? And here's the thing about rejection. Every time you experience rejection, you ask this question, is something wrong with me? And the answer is normally yes. Yes, there is something wrong with you. In fact, rejection is normally a wake-up call. Okay, maybe, there's, maybe I need to change. Maybe it was them, but maybe it might be better for me to start thinking it's me. And then you get to high school, and it's rejection from sports. And then you get to the end of high school, and you, you, know, you have that conversation with yourself, or if you have a good relationship with your parents, like, how smart am I? What school can I get into? And then we all have the safety school, right? The safety school is a school that I don't think is going to reject me, Okay. And so rejection is a part of life. Now, here's what's interesting. Rejection is at the very center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn to Mark 14. We're going to be in verse 26. On the screen behind me, though, I want to take you to the hinge verse in Mark. It's Mark 8.31, okay? On the screen, you're going to see this. Mark 8.31 says this. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's his favorite designation for himself, must suffer many things. And we talk about that all the time. Oh, here's the word. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, oh, and after three days rise again. Now, when we talk about what Jesus did, we often talk about his suffering. We often talk about his being killed on, on our behalf, his death. And we often talk about his resurrection. The only thing we forget is the longest part of that, which is his rejection. Here's what we're gonna see today. Jesus, this is where we're going. We got a lot of verses to cover. I'm gonna try to go quick and Summarize and simplify some of them, but here's what we're going to see today. Uh, Jesus is forsaken by his father in the garden. It's the beginning of Jesus' suffering in the garden of Gethsemane. He is betrayed by Judas in that same garden. He is condemned by culture, and he is denied by Peter. That's where we're going. Jesus experienced rejection. Now, how does this hit us? And I'm going to try to do a good job of hopefully explaining this. Um, the center of the gospel is that Jesus is our substitute and he lived the life that we should have lived but have failed to live. And he lived for us and died for us. And so here's the big idea today. Jesus experienced rejection so that you could be accepted. Jesus is condemned by culture so you can be invited into the kingdom. Jesus is betrayed and denied by his friends so you would know he would never leave you. With that said, let's go to Mark 14. We're gonna pick up in verse 26. Here we go. 
It says this, remember they're finishing. Spencer did a great job last week, Lord's Supper. They just were at the Lord's Supper, or you might call it the Last Supper, or you might call it the final Passover meal, whatever you wanna call it. They leave there and verse 26 says this. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's interesting. We know from another account that Judas has already left. So Judas leaves. So there's 11 guys. They don't have any instruments. They decide to sing a hymn. Here's what I want. This is real short, but I just want us to understand that Jesus was a man and he sang. Now, who's the most unlikely person to sing in church? A grown man. But listen, the women in your life, the children in your life, the, your brothers in your life, they need to hear you sing. Jesus sings a song. By the way, that's partly how you comfort yourself, through singing. You think of Jesus teaching. You think of Jesus preaching. You think of Jesus praying. We don't often think of Jesus singing. Here's one of the verses we get about Jesus singing. Well, he goes to the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, and them is the 11, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13, verse nine there. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's doing what every great leader does, what every great parent does, what every great teacher does, is he tells people what's going to happen as much as he can. Now, Jesus knew everything, but as much as we understand, we tell people, hey, this is what's gonna happen so that you have the right perspective and the expectations that you're not surprised. Here's what he says, and this is the gospel. You're going to fall away. You're going to forsake me, but afterwards, I'm gonna come and find you. Now, this is what makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world. Every other religion basically says, God, I have to find you. Maybe it's the five steps of this or the eight pillars of that. Or there's, God, you're hard to find. You're running away from me. And uh, my goal in life is to follow after you. Actually, the Bible says, actually, no, we've all failed. We've all fallen. We've all forsaken. And Jesus is committed to running after us. That's the gospel. Let me just encourage you. If you're running away from God, all you need to do is turn around. He'll be right there. You're like, he's fast. He's very fast, okay? <laughs> he's following you. So what he says here is you're gonna, you're gonna fall away, but look what happens here. Verse 29, here's Peter. We're gonna pick on Peter today. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I'm unique. And Jesus said to him, he's like, Jesus is like, this is gonna get awkward. I didn't wanna bring this up. I wasn't, I wasn't gonna single you out, but then I'm gonna have to. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, and we're going to return to that. Why, why doesn't Jesus say the rooster just needs to crow one time? Why does he say twice? Why is it not twice in a row? Why is it one time and then a little bit later? We'll see that. But he's telling them the rooster's going to crow twice. You will deny me three times. Look what he says. But, this is he, uh, meaning Peter, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And before we're too hard on Peter, do you see what it says? And they all said the same. So Peter, he always speaks first and for the other disciples. Here's what Peter is doing. Peter doesn't understand Christianity. Christianity is not about the promises we make to God. Christianity is about embracing the promises God's made to us. Have you ever made promises to God? I mean, all you have to do is be a Christian for probably a month and you've made a couple of promises to God, right? Now, a lot of times we make promises to God when we think things are going really well because like, we're like, well, I don't know, you're at a retreat, you're at a conference, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you're feeling pretty good about your walk, you're maybe having a mountaintop experience. Or I think what's more common probably, have you ever made promises after you've really messed up? They're, they're usually, I don't know, you wake up at three in the morning and your conscience is condemning you and you slip out of bed on your knees and... Those promises are normally, I will never. Remember those? I will never text him again. I will never look at that again. I will never drink that much again. 
I will never smoke that again. I will never go there again. But have you ever had the experience of you pray that and you, you believed it for that moment. You're like, I'm doing this. You wrote it down, kind of coded in your journal so no one would ever read it <laughs> in case they found it. But you, you wrote something down about you made promises. And then the most humiliating thing for most of us is like you broke it immediately. I bet there's times you make promises here. We have a response at the end. You make a promise, you get home, and before the next day, we break it. The, the biblical image of this in the Proverbs is it says a dog returns to his vomit, which is kind of a gross image. Basically, what it means is what, what a dog will do is a dog will throw something up, leave the room, come back, and eat his own throw up. But what an image of what we do. Now, let's not be too hard on Peter. What does Peter do well? Peter wants to be loyal. Do you want to be loyal? I mean, that's, if you want to be loyal, if you want to do the right thing, you're probably doing better than, let's say, maybe half the people, because, well, that's good. You'd like to do the right thing. Um, but the, he, I think he makes several mistakes. The first mistake that he makes is he speaks more than he listens, right? Well, that's a little thing. He speaks, he, he hears Jesus, he responds. Probably the second mistake he makes is he argues with Jesus instead of asking for help. I don't know, right? We don't know how to... You know, what are all possible futures? How could this story ended differently if Peter responded differently? I mean, I don't know what could have happened. But is it possible that there would be a way where Peter could say, well, Jesus, is there anything that I could do that this wouldn't happen? Could we pray about this together? Like, is there anything? Are there some things that I need to do? Are there some places that do I need to just leave so that I don't do something sinful or stupid? He doesn't ask that. But here's his main thing, and I said this earlier. He thinks he's unique. Do you ever feel like there are certain temptations or certain sins that you would never give in to. I think we tend to see that. We, we tend to watch if, if someone else's life falls apart. I don't know, somebody else has an affair. Somebody else gets into some kind of gross sin or some addiction. And it's, you watch it from a distance, and then you think something like, I don't think I would do that. I don't think that's a good way to think about yourself. I think a better way to think about yourself is given the right situation, you could do the wrong thing. I mean, what if you're hungry and you're angry and you're lonely and you're tired and you drank too much? I mean, who knows what we, we're capable of given the right situation, we could do the wrong thing. When I, I grew up in a ministry that always warned us, you're two weeks away from wrecking your life, which is not encouraging <laughs> to think about. And maybe two weeks is too quick, but I think there's something in there. It's like, man, because whenever somebody gets to a place where they cross the line, whatever the line is. They always ask themselves this question, and if they ask it honestly, they'll get the answer, how did I get here? And it's usually a long answer, but the very short answer is one step at a time. They normally have to go back to like the first thing they allowed into their life, and the first time they didn't tell somebody, and the first time they almost got caught, and the first time they didn't confess it when they could have. Well, I want to see what happens here. So, so Jesus doesn't even, you'll notice, Jesus doesn't even respond to Peter's spiritual pride and overconfidence. Peter doesn't need, understand yet that he needs grace. From here they leave. Let's see where they go. Verse 32. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago that, about a month ago now, or three or four weeks ago, that I was in Israel. You know, and I don't want to every time, you know, we come to a passage, I say, hey, I was there, okay? But... I was there, okay, on this one. <laughs> I was. I was in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple weeks ago. It was pretty cool. And here's what the Garden of Gethsemane is. The Garden of Gethsemane is at the very bottom of the Mount of Olives. So you literally, there's something called the Hosanna Pathway. You walk down it, and you get to a flat area at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, and it's 
Gethsemane. And all Gethsemane means literally is oil press. That's what it means. So it makes sense. Well, the reason it got called Gethsemane is, well, they would take all the olives from off the mountain and they would bring them down into the valley area, the flat area, and they would press the olives because how you got the most value out of the olives was to crush them. Interesting symbolism here for Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, gardens are a big deal in the Bible. Like, we, we're, not, we're not a generation, we're not, Americans don't think a lot about symbolism, but the Jewish people did, and the Hebrews did for sure, and the Old Testament and New Testament is full of symbolism. So where does the Bible start? A garden. Where does the Bible end? If you read it carefully, a city with a garden in the middle of it. And one of the other accounts of the resurrection, Jesus, remember, he rises from the dead. Do you remember who Mary thinks he is? Are you the gardener? Interesting. Why would you say that? Because he was in a garden. He rose in a garden. What's interesting here is our first father, Adam, failed in a garden. He disobeyed at a tree. At our second, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is going to obey in a tree or in a garden. Let's see what happens here. So verse 32 continued. And he said to his disciples, so he's, he's about to go through some enormous suffering. I'll show you this. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He doesn't even tell them to pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. He had, this is his DNA group. This is his closest friends. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So the people ask, theologians ask, when did the suffering of Christ begin? And, and there's lots of answers to that. Some people say, oh, let me tell you when the suffering of Christ began. It began in his incarnation, the whole idea that he emptied himself, that he took on human flesh, that he lived a human life, that suffering, and yes. But when did the intensity and the frequency of his suffering really begin? It was at the Garden of Gethsemane. So when Jesus is suffering, do you see what he needs, the two things he needs when he's suffering? They're right in the text there. And you need a lot of things when you're suffering, but the two things Jesus needs, are, I think it's the same things we need, people and prayer. Right? Now, people are always suffering. People reach out to us all the time when they're suffering. And there's practical things you can tell someone when they're suffering. Like the most practical thing you can tell somebody when they're suffering, practically, is shorten your time frame. Right? Say someone, I don't know, they break their leg. Like, you know, we've gotten this phone call before. Pastor Kyle, I, you know, I'm going to be in this cast for four months, and I just can't even think about all the things that, are, that I can't do for four months. And the answer to that is, well, then you need to shorten the time frame. Let's think about the next day. Can you think about a day? Can you think about a week? So there's, there's some practical things you do when suffering. But what do you need? You need people. You need prayer. So he needs these disciples. He doesn't even say, I want to talk to you guys. I think this is why we're not good at what's called, this is called the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence is I'm just there when someone is hurting. And sometimes we don't do that because like, what would I say? I felt that. What verses would I tell them? What questions should I ask them? It's like, no, the ministry of presence is literally, we just need you to be there. The greatest example of the ministry of presence is the apostle John next to Mary at the cross of Christ. He's just there. He's there for Jesus. He's there for Mary in the time of need. But he doesn't just need people. He needs prayer. I mean, the, what he does in the Garden of Gethsemane is he prays three times earnestly. How do you process your pain, right? Well, what do you do with pain? A lot of us don't like pain, right? I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so it's like I don't like negative emotion at all. Most people, it's like they feel, I don't know, they, they feel pain and it's like, you know, tub of bluebell ice cream for you, right? <laughs> uh, it's drink too much. It's entertain myself. Uh, a very common one is just sleep a lot because it's too painful to be conscious. Jesus goes and he processes his pain through prayer. And that's really how, it, the prayer is really the one place you can be honest. You can close the door, you can unplug Alexa, no one's listening, right? You can get on your knees 
And you could just say to God things that you would never want to say to another person. Why did I marry him? Like, gosh, did I marry the wrong person? Like, why do I have cancer? Like, why am I so angry at my one son all the time? Why can't I say no to this addiction? Why do I hate being single so much? I don't know. You just pour your heart out to God. And in the process, you learn more about yourself. If you don't know how to... Now, a lot of us, we don't know how to pray and express emotion. So this is why the Psalms are helpful, because in the Psalms are all the experiences and emotions of, of the human life. Well, let's see what Jesus does. He, he continues to pray here. Verse 34. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch. Again, he doesn't even ask them to pray for him. This is something Jesus has to deal with himself. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, literally in the Greek, collapsed. This isn't getting down nicely on his knees to pray because it's a good position to pray. And this is, I'm overwhelmed by the weight of what I'm about to do and I collapse. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, here's the key words we're gonna look at, the hour might pass from him. That's the first word, hour. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. That's the second thing we'll look at from me. Now, here's what's interesting. Critics of the Bible, and there's lots of critics of the Bible, but lots of critics of the Bible don't read the Bible. But critics of the Bible that read the Bible, those are a different type of critic. Um, one of the things that they have said is, man, it's hard to see Jesus as divine in this passage because he seems so afraid of death. And people have wrestled with that because if you think about like... <laughs> Christians or non-Christians, but let's start with Christians. Christians have faced death joyfully. Like there are stories, there, when you read them in Fox's Book of Martyrs and other places, you're really surprised by them. You, you'll hear stories of men and women singing on their way to the lion's den. You, you, there, I remember reading a story one time about a guy, he was about to be burned at, the cro or burned at a stake. And when he got up to the stake, he hugged it and said, I'm almost home. Peter, who was crucified, he says, church, tr church tradition tells us, don't crucify me like everybody else. Crucify me upside down. He faces the cross with confidence and lack of fear. And then there's non-Christians, right? Socrates drinks the poison, puts his house in order beforehand, won't recant. William Wallace, we love Braveheart. We love the movies. He's yelling freedom. So they ask this question, well, then if other Christians and non-Christians are able to face death with such confidence, why couldn't Jesus? And it's not that Jesus was afraid of death. He was afraid of the wrath of God. And you and I should be as well. We get it in that phrase, the hour and the cup. So a careful reading of Jesus' ministry, he'll say things like in the Gospels, my time has not come. My hour has not come. The hour was the moment where God was going to treat Jesus like sin. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus never sinned, but at the cross, God treated Jesus as every person's sin all at one time. Now, I'm not a huge student of revival, but as I've read about revival, there's a famous revival that happened in Ireland several decades ago. And they said the revival was so big that when ships would pull into sea from other ports, the sailors would come under conviction when they'd pull in. They'd immediately feel like they were sinners. 
And when they've interviewed people about what this revival happened, they said, one of the guys interviewed said something very interesting. He said, what would happen during this revival, <clears throat> which all revival is an acceleration of the work of God in one place. <clears throat> they say, he said, here's what would happen during a revival. He said, you'd get there, the pastor would start to preach. He said, and it would be as if every sin you ever committed was right in front of you. Imagine that. Well, just think about the last week, or maybe if you can remember the last month, and I don't know, just think about what you'd consider your bigger sins. Then imagine them all being in front of you all at once. And then imagining you having to pay for them all at once. What Jesus is saying is, every person who would ever believe in me, I am going to suffer the wrath of God. I'm going to experience, we'll see this next week, I'm going to experience basically hell on the cross for three hours straight, and he was afraid of that. The, the, the illustration of the cup is, what's the cup? It's something you drink. So he basically asked the question, is it possible for this hour to pass and for this cup to not have to be drank by me? Which is, we've said this before, but this is the question, is there another way for people to get to heaven if I don't go to the cross? And God's answer is, I can't save you and save them. I can't, so this is why, I mean, I know what people mean, I, this is why I do get frustrated at that question, because if you understand, no, there's only one way that sin can be dealt with, there's only one way that forgiveness can be given, and it was so terrifying that Jesus himself had to wrestle with this. And he gets to a point where he says this famous prayer, look here, verse 36, yet not what I will, but will you but what you will. This is, this is the picture of submission. This is the picture of surrender. This is the moment where finally our salvation was decided and cemented for good. Jesus decides not what I will, God, but what you will. But what you will. This is a picture of submission and surrender. Let me ask you this. Where in your life do you need to submit and surrender? This is such a hard... Every time I teach on submission... It feels like I have to, I don't have time tonight but I, or this morning, but I have to talk about it for 10 or 15 minutes because we have such negative connotations with the word submission. But Jesus here submits. I think submission to God looks something like this. It's like, God, I want to do, there's a power in this. I want to do what your word says in this area of my life. I actually think that's the heart of prayer. I, someone told me one time, 90% of prayer is getting neutral before God. <laughs> God, this is my marriage. I want to do what you said in it. God, these are my kids. God, these are my finances. God, this is my stage of life. God, this is my health. And there's power and there's grace that comes when we submit. Well, Jesus, he has to go back and forth and pray multiple times about this. Look at verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. If you ever feel like I'm praying the same things the same way, Jesus did as well. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. There's that phrase again. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So he comes to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. And he warns them, he both challenges and encourages them. He warns them to pray. 
Now, again, I wonder this. I wonder if Peter would not have denied Jesus if he would have stayed awake and prayed. We don't know, right? And the same thing with your life. What are all the good things that haven't happened because you haven't prayed? What's impossible for us? Maybe God will tell us in heaven. But then this scene ends. He's forsaken by God the Father. He gets silence from heaven when asked, is there another way? And now he's about to be betrayed by Judas. Now, again, Spencer did a great job last week introducing this. I just want to talk about betrayal for a moment. What makes betrayal so hard on us is it's always done by a trusted person. That's the definition of betrayal. Betrayal is something like a sense of harm done to you by the intentional actions of someone you trusted. So the illustration that we have, like common today illustration is, you stabbed me in the back. And if you think about that illustration, it's a perfect illustration of betrayal because the only person who could stab you in the back is somebody who was able to get close enough to you to do it, who you didn't expect to do it. That's why you were able to turn around and look in a different direction because you didn't ever see it coming. Now, betrayal is an interesting thing because there's different types of betrayal. We're going to look at Judas's in a minute. But all of us will have to deal with betrayal. Sometimes someone's betrayed us. And when somebody betrays you, it's, this is, I'm speaking psychologically for a minute. When, when somebody betrays you, it's almost impossible for you to see them the same again. It takes a lot of work. Because when someone betrays you, it makes you ask a lot of questions about the past that you never asked. Well, how long were you planning this? Did you ever love me? Who else have you told? There's, ty- there's different types of betrayal. The most common type of betrayal is what's called a harmful disclosure. A harmful disclosure is you shared something. I gave you the fine china of my life, and you shared it. Normally, we share it with somebody else because, well, it makes us feel good that we have insider information, or it makes us feel good to destroy somebody else's reputation to elevate our own. The number one way that people betray is harmful disclosures. The second way people uh, uh, betray, they say, is dishonesty across time. It's usually the hiding of something. So what I've seen in my ministry experience is that when a sin is sometimes confessed, but certainly when somebody is caught with a sin, most times the spouse or the dad or the mom or the friend is much less upset about the sin. It's much more about the betrayal. It's much more about the hiding. It's much more about the lying. And then you have to decide how far back do we need to go? Is this years? Do we need to go months? Do we need to go years? In some cases, do we need to go decades and talk about something? Is the entire past a lie in our relationships? Very hard on people. And then, of course, the the most graphic type of betrayal is actually infidelity itself. You had the emotional affair. You had the physical affair. And then they ask, why do people do this? Why, why do people betray? I mean, the, the theological answer is sin, but under sin, is it's two things. It's narcissism and an opportunity. <laughs> That's what betrayal is. I'm only thinking about myself, and I see, this is what Judas did, I see an opportunity for me. I'm gonna have to put somebody else down for me to get this opportunity. The problem with betrayal, outside of it being a sin, is it's always a short-term game. Betrayal works like, it doesn't work, but if you know what I'm saying, it works one time. And then that person doesn't trust you ever again. And here's what I've seen, again, in, in, in our church and in our ministry. A marriage can, and I believe in the grace of God, a marriage can usually handle one betrayal. I'm talking of a serious nature, and hopefully that doesn't ever happen. But I've seen, I've seen marriages handle one betrayal. There's confession, there's repentance, there's restoration. I have seen it very hard, almost impossible, to make it through two or three betrayals. 
because of the amount of work to re-see the person who betrayed you in a new light, for trust to be re-extended and re-earned. Let's look at what happens with uh, Judas. Verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. Uh, this is also a sign that Judas didn't understand Jesus' mission. Jesus said he was going to go willingly. He brings all these guys with swords and clubs. From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, interesting, that's now how he's known. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. By the way, this is where we get the, the phrase kiss of death. It comes from this passage. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, this is really interesting. We find out from another account. Do we know who this is? Peter. And we actually find out from another account that Jesus heals the man's ear immediately after it's cut off. Now, we may go, that's a really cool miracle. And it's really cool to see Jesus doing miracles even while he's about to go to the cross. But that's not the reason Jesus healed his ear. The reason Jesus healed his ear is because you cannot attack a Roman soldier. And if he had not restored his ear, there would have been four crosses at Calvary. What a powerful picture. Jesus is saving Peter's life even as Peter is about to deny him and leave him. Look what happens. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Look, verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. You're like, I know all scriptures, you know, inspired by God, but that's a little strange, right? Uh, here's what that is. That most uh, tradition tells us, most commentaries say this is Mark. Mark is doing what Stan Lee does. If you know Stan Lee, Stan Lee would put himself in all of the Avengers movies at like a weird scene, okay? Hitchcock, would, uh, Alfred Hitchcock did the exact same thing. He was in 36 different movies he put himself in. This is Peter just, or it's not Peter, this is Mark just putting himself in, in, in the movie per se, saying I was there. Now, here's what happens. He is forsaken by God, Jesus is. He is betrayed by uh, Judas. And now he's about to, I, I don't have time to read it all to you. It's found in verses 53 through 65. But he's gonna be condemned by every leader and institution in the culture. And I wish I had more time to get into this. I'm gonna get into this next week when we see, look at Pilate. But you have to understand that Jesus is going to face six trials. In, uh, three of them are more political. Three of them are religious. He keeps going back and forth. But he is condemned by culture. This is very, we need to think about this for a moment. This, is, this would almost be like if your nation was against you and you had to go to the Supreme Court. And also at the same time, your church excommunicated you and told you they didn't want you to come back. And at the same time, everybody on Twitter was tweeting about you, okay, negatively. You got the Twitter mob. I mean, that's, I'm being kind of funny here, but that, that's what it would feel like. It's, and it's very hard if you've ever just had someone say a negative comment on your Facebook page, you're like, it hurts, right? Yet alone, having everybody in every respected institution come against you. And what you see, in, you see in this trial is that it's an unjust trial, but here's what I want us to see. Go down to verse 65, I'll show you this, or 66 it is. Verse 66, 
there's actually two, this is what Peter wants us to understand. There's actually two trials going on. The one trial is the trial we all think of. Jesus before the high priest, being asked if he's the son of God, being accused of blaspheme, having false witnesses, all that. But there's a second trial. Look at verse uh, 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Now, we think courtyard, we think, oh, the courtyard, that's like a nice garden area. Like, that's how we think of it today. That's maybe in a, if you have a larger home or a larger estate, you kind of have this opening courtyard. Well, look at the literal words there. That's what it was back then. It was a courtyard. It was where court was held for lesser cases. Here's what Mark wants us to see. Jesus is on trial. He's faithful in trial. Peter is also on trial, and he is unfaithful. Jesus is going to be accused of blaspheme, and he's not a blasphemer because he is the Son of God. In a moment, Peter is going to call down curses. Most people think he's using the Lord's name in vain and blaspheming God to show that he's not part of Jesus' tribe. Jesus doesn't blaspheme, Peter does. Jesus is able to stand up to the high priest of the day and give an account. Peter crumbles when a servant girl asks him a question. That's what we're supposed to hear. I'll show you. Here we go. Um, and seeing Peter, this is verse 67, warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gate, gateway, and the rooster crowed. Now, I mentioned this when we first read the story. Jesus said the rooster's going to crow twice, but here the rooster just crows once, meaning the rooster's going to crow one more time. Here's what this was. This was a warning crow. Has the rooster ever crowed once in your life? Right? Let me give you some examples of the rooster crowing once in your life. Have you ever almost got caught? You're like, oh, man, that was close. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Have you ever had a health scare? You're like, I think this is maybe connected to some addiction in my life. Have your kids ever just gotten a little bit older and they're a little more sophisticated and they ask you about something in your life that's not right? You go, man, maybe this is the rooster crowing one time in my life. Has your spouse ever brought up something in your life that you knew was an issue? Your own conscience was already condemning you. This is a warning. Now, here's what tends to happen when the rooster crows once in our life. We have two options. One is, which is the option I hope we'll choose, I need to repent. This is God's grace in waking me up, and I didn't get caught maybe, but this is the time to repent. My health hasn't completely failed, but it's starting to. There's still grace. There's still time. But a lot of people, when the rooster crows once, they go, that was nothing. Or they, if, they have a, if they have a negative view of themselves, maybe they think, well, I already did X, Y, and Z, so I might as well just keep on. I already gave in. I already messed up. I might as well keep going. Well, we'll see what happens with Peter. Verse 69. And the servant girl saw him, and she began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now he, how would they know that? He would have had an accent. He would have had a uniquely Galilean accent that would have let him know he's from that area. Here it is. But he began to invoke a curse, probably using the Lord's name in vain. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man 
of whom you speak. Now, I just want us to understand, this is going to be the leader of the church, the leader of the other disciples when Jesus goes to heaven. One of the reasons that I believe the Bible, there's supernatural reasons and there's natural reasons. One of the natural reasons I believe the Bible is it was written by people who are not the heroes in the story, but the villains in the story. And here's Peter, and I'm trying to not overstate it, but not understate the gravity of what Peter does. This is a grievous sin, right? There are different types of sin. All sin deserves punishment, I get that. But then there are uniquely grievous public sin. And that's what Peter did. He did a sin repeatedly. Again and again and again in the same night. Have you ever done that? It's like, this is a bad sin, I'm just gonna indulge in it. It's public. He ruins temporarily, and this is hard to recover from, he temporarily ruins his public witness. This is gonna be the leader of the church, the guy who's afraid of the servant girl. This is who it's gonna be. He's not with Jesus, helping Jesus, standing up for Jesus in Jesus' greatest time of need. But watch what happens. 70, verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. What brought conviction in Peter's life was the word of God. And this is what we see. I've seen this again and again and again, usually from people who grew up in Christian homes. They go and they live a rebellious lifestyle for a season and then something happens. Maybe they go to a church and they hear a sermon and they hadn't heard the word of God in a long time. Maybe it's scripture memory verses their parents made them remember and they all of a sudden they remember, oh my goodness, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. They remember some portion of scripture and they feel conviction. What happens with conviction is when your situation and the scriptures come together. Where what's going on in your world and the word of God come together. And what's powerful about the story is, I think this is the reason, in some ways, this is the beginning of Peter's restoration. Peter is going to be restored. We see, we see this fully. If you want to look fully for his restoration, it happens in John 20 and John 21. But I want to show you something. If we have it on the screen, Mark 16, verses 6 and 7. This is just the next chapter. Look what this says here. This is as soon as Jesus rises from the dead. Look what he says. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. He says this to the women. Or This isn't Jesus. This is the angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. But then look what he says. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus rises from the dead and the first thing he does is do what he said he was gonna do at the beginning, which he's gonna go back after them. And he especially names Peter. See, I think what made Peter the right leader for the church is he was going to, from that day on, lead with a limp, right? The best leaders are the leaders who have experienced the grace of God in their own life, who've had the troubles in their marriage, who've, known their, who've walked with difficulties with their kids, who've had to break addictions in their own life, and who don't just extend the grace of God to other people, but have experienced it, who don't just preach repentance, but have in their own life practice repentance. 
the sad story as kind of the, as the narrative closes, and we don't get this in Mark's account, but we get this in other accounts, is the difference between Judas and Peter. What happens with Judas is Judas experiences what we call godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is I'm, or sorry, Judas experienced worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is I'm sorry for the effects of my sin. And Judas ended up taking his life. Godly sorrow is I'm sorry for my sin. It's the difference between remorse, which is what Judas felt, and repentance, which is what Peter felt. So as we close, if, you, if you'll just close your eyes, bow your heads, I just wanna give us an opportunity to think about something and respond and just pray about this moment. As we look at the first leader of the church failing, and we wanna be a church where we don't want anyone to fail, but where someone could fail. We wanna be a place where a person's life can fall apart. We wanna be a place where people can come and be healed and set free. We wanna be a place of grace. We wanna be a place where people get second and third and fourth chances. The truth is that Jesus wasn't just rejected so that you and I could be accepted. He was rejected so that we could be restored. And I just wanna ask you as we close, just between you, before you and the Lord, not before anyone else, just has the rooster crowed once in your life? Has there been a warning call that says it's time to wake up, it's time to repent, it's time to clean this area of your life up, it's time to reconcile this relationship. It's time to confess this sin. Would you just take a moment, just ask God for the strength to do that, to heed the warning of the first rooster crow. For others in here, just this will just be personally for you, some of you have felt in this room like the rooster has crowed twice. You know, Kyle, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did in high school. You don't know what I did when I was single. You don't know what I did in college. You don't know what I did on vacation. Peter is a picture that there always can be restoration. Restoration includes two things. It includes, it includes first and foremost being restored to Christ. And after a time, restored to ministry. Lord, we pray that that's what would happen in here, Lord, that nobody, there's too many things to do. There's too many people to reach. There's too much ministry and mission to be done for anyone to sit on the sidelines because of something they did in the past. So would you give us grace? Would you give us community? Would two cities be a place of healing, hope, and restoration? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.